Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. The fact that I said that on the OTDM podcast last week, the uh, welcome back to another episode, I immediately want to say Ask Katie Anything, so I'm going to have to come up with a new way to intro that other podcast. But anyways, without further ado, happy Thursday. How are you? I am wearing, okay, I bought this cardigan. I mean, I guess you'd call it a cardigan. Just a little soft over jacket. It has no buttons though. I'm not sure exactly what constitutes cardigan, but it's got these nice floofy sleeves. If you're just listening, it's like gray and like looks like mohair. It's like super fuzzy and super soft and stretchy. Anyways, do you know back in like May of last year, maybe even April, where you didn't really think that COVID was going to like take over everything. You're just like, oh, we're just doing this for a little while. It'll be okay. I bought this on sale and was so excited. I was like, oh, when it gets cold in winter, I'll wear it. Where am I going? Nowhere. But I thought I'd share it with you. Yay. Um. Anyway, so I'm excited because this is the first time I've worn it other than around my house. <laughs> um. So we have 10 questions, but I got a really nice comment slash question because it's not a question. It's not, but I got the most thumbs ups. And as I was reading it, you guys, I I can't, I'll I'll read it to you and then we'll talk about it. But let's just jump into it because that'll kind of, you know, lend itself to the entire podcast and us catching up a little bit before we get into all the questions. So it says, hey, Katie, this is not a question. Rather, I wanted to let you know how much everyone in this community is grateful for you and all that you've done for us. Like everyone else, I can see this year has been tough for you and Sean, but yet you've given us advice and encouragement to deal through these stressful times. Your words of wisdom have helped me and thousands of others around the world to be a better version of themselves. I wanted to let you know how much this community loves you and all the hard work you do to respond to our questions with thoughtful and timely answers is the greatest part of my week. You are the most caring person I know and you deserve the world. I hope this can get a lot of thumbs up to show you just how appreciative and thankful we all are to have you. Love you, Katie. And as always, happy Thursday. Um, First of all, made me cry and and good, good tears. You guys know I'm a crier. I'm going to cry just talking about it. But um, that's the one thing, because I don't know if any of you have feel, have felt this too, but not only has this year, and I'm just talking year, not even just 2020, but like COVID, like it's been almost an entire year that we've been on lockdown. This year has not is just stressful. It's I feel stressed for no like I mean I know anxiety in general for me it comes out of nowhere like I really don't always know the you know the precursor or the cause but that low level of stress that I've been feeling I'm sure you all have too and the hate and just drama online in general and some like people are coming after me cuz people just, I don't know why I want to, but coming after other people. And I've heard from a lot of you, you're getting more bullied online and people just, you know, shouting bad things at each other. And it's all just a symptom of the fact that we're all feeling terrible. And I bring that all up just to say that it's because of you guys and because of our community that I keep doing what I'm doing, because I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that there are times when things are difficult that I I don't consider stopping just because it's overwhelming, right? And you feel exhausted and, and stressed out and tired. And 2020 was so trying. It's like, was this even worth it? People are just so nasty online and cancel culture and blah, blah, blah. But every time I read a comment like this or get a message from those of you on Patreon or even on Instagram, the comments and things like that, like, I uh, thank you for the, the sweet and kind comment, all the thumbs ups. But I want you all to know that I appreciate you just as much because it, it goes both ways, right? It's like I did that YouTube uh, live stream on Monday, this last Monday instead of a video. And it was so great to connect with all of you and just hear how you're doing and answer questions. And it really brightens my day. And I had a, I do a couple of Patreon live streams every month and those brighten my day. Like it was the last one that I did at the end of January. I was just having a shitty day for some reason, you know, because I'm human too. And doing that live stream just really made things better. And it just reminds me of why I'm doing what I'm doing and why I'm putting all this effort in. And 
yeah, so so thank you guys too. I'm really grateful for each and every one of you. So yeah, that comment totally made my my year. Let's be honest. Okay, let's move into the first question. Katie, what is a crisis? It's a great question. There's a lot of talk about if you're in a crisis, call and reach out and do this or that. But no one ever explains what that means. In light of last week's second question, it seems pertinent to discuss what crisis means. For context, oh, sorry, excuse me, I had to burp. For context, I had that suicidal thoughts conversation with my therapist the day before the podcast came out, so serendipitous. And then we continued it in my next session and discussed it. She kind of walked around the question of what does it mean to be in crisis by talking more about what to do while in crisis. On some of my best days last year, I tried to reach out to online platforms for help and was denied and told they weren't suitable for crisis care and was referred to various crisis support lines. Those were good days. Yeah, I'm sure. Do I just exit or, or do I just exist in crisis mode? Question mark. My thoughts of suicide are comforting in the way Sitting with a clear view of all exits in a crowded restaurant is comforting. Understandable. That's very common. Am I mistaken? Is thinking about how and where just as bad as preparing? I also want to know what's wrong with planning. I will never tell my therapist about my plan, but I will tell her that I've made sure that it's something I can do impulsively. Is there a line between planning and preparing? When therapists ask about a suicide plan, are they actually meaning, have you sat down and made preparations? I say this in, um, I say this in all of my long comments, but I truly do mean it. If you've taken the time to read this, thank you. Time is our most precious resource because it is so finite. I truly appreciate you spending some of it on me. Of course, happy to do it. This is a great question. And maybe this is a video that I create. I'm gonna, I'm gonna bold that and like copy it into a video doc. Uh, like for my, because I keep everything separate and organized, I do my best. But so often in the mental health space, we use words as if people understand what we're trying to say. And it really is a disservice to you and people who are trying to get better and understand things and and know what appropriate help they need to reach out at what time or reach out to. At what time? So let's start at the beginning about what is a crisis. Now, crisis, obviously, I can't define it for you in particular, but I can tell you a little bit about what it means. So a crisis is when we do not have any ability to use the skills that we usually can use to help us feel better, meaning my coping skills or like, let's say I usually reach out to, let's say I'm an addict and in, in recovery. So usually I reach out to my sponsor, then I text with my sister, then I journal or I color or I do an impulse log or I watch some, uh, you know, bad TV or I stretch or go for a walk. There's all these things that we can do and it's our way of coping. Maybe I take a long bath. There can be all sorts of things that work for me. But if those things don't work right now, or I can't even contemplate doing them, like especially my depressed patients, for instance, will just feel so like the weight of the depression is so heavy that even getting out of bed is just, it's like a insurmountable task, right? That's technically a crisis. If we aren't able to use any of our tools and we are feeling really bad, potentially a danger to ourselves, I mean, or someone else, but usually this is a danger to ourselves. We're talking about suicide here. If that is what's happening, then that is a crisis. And so really to me, a crisis is just like when we are unable to function and none of our tools are working. So we need we need more support is really what that means. Does that make sense? So we can have bad days where we can, you know, we try our coping skills and they kind of work okay and we're okay, but we're just like, ugh, it's a shit day. That's fine. But if it's so bad, so like that we can't do any of those things, even attempt them, and we may be thinking about taking our own life or harming ourselves in one way or another, that's a crisis. And so if you feel yourself being pulled into that, where almost can't even see out of the hopelessness and helplessness, that's a crisis. We need to reach out for more help. So that's that. And then, and that, and when it comes to online, uh, you said online resources. I forget the, I'm looking through this. Sorry. Um, so yeah, when uh, online platforms and you were denied being suicidal, actively suicidal, meaning there's a plan, you are actively thinking about it. It's happening all the time and you have the means to do it. All of that is a, 
what we would consider a crisis, to use that word again, but also high risk, meaning you could attempt to take your own life at any time. And when it comes to online platforms, frankly, they're not set up to us like assist with the support of that because it's just too dangerous, right? Like you, you could actually harm yourself. Therefore, they're going to push you to get help in person so that you can actually receive that help. And does that make sense? It's just a distance being online means I could be in Indiana and you could be in New York and I'm too far away to actually be able to assist you. Like if something were to happen or if I actually worried that something was going to happen. So there's that. And then the last little bit about like, um, do you just exist in crisis mode? Some of us do. And what that actually tells us, it's first of all, no judgments. It's not a, it's not like, oh, it's a terrible thing. Like, oh, you're just existing in crisis mode. No, I believe that you're, it's possible for lots of us that our baseline, so kind of like this thing that we run in all the time, right? Our baseline way of being is crisis or is complete hypervigilance or is, you know, depths of depression. Like we can exist in such a state for so long that it becomes our baseline. It becomes like the way that we just are in the world. And so it is possible that your baseline is more what people would consider a crisis mode. All that tells us is that we maybe don't even know what it's like to exist outside of crisis and being outside of crisis could be super uncomfortable. And I bring that up because that's the reason having those suicidal thoughts or the plan or whatever is comforting because it's normal, because we feel like shit. And like you said, it's like when you would look for a crowded restaurant and you'd look for an exit so you knew you could get out, it's that. Because our life is that crowded restaurant and we're feeling overwhelmed all the time. And since we just exist in crisis mode and don't even know what it's like to not feel like this, the thought of this going on and on and on and on until we, you know, die at the, I don't know, a good old happy age of like 89, seems unbearable. And so we like to know that we have that exit. So that's why that happens. And it's not that you're mistaken. It's just we're caught in this false, it's not even false. That's not even the right word. It's like we're caught in this unhealthy thought cycle. The thought cycle probably being something like, I'm just hypothesizing here because you would know what your thought cycles are. So, and everyone's going to be a little different, but you'll get the gist. The thought cycle is, I feel horrible. Life is worthless. I, I'm lazy. I'm worthless. We have all these like thoughts, right? Uh, about what's our situation. Then I have feelings about those. Those feelings are things like helplessness, hopelessness, uh, self-loathing, anger, possibly irritability, right? I could have all of that. So feelings about thoughts, thoughts that are just created probably out of the lack of dopamine and serotonin in my brain, which we know causes depressed mood. So I have feelings about that. And then I take actions as a result, not getting out of bed, not showering, not wanting to talk to people, trying to disconnect, looking for Uh, you know, having a plan always for suicide because life just seems unbearable and all of that. And so we just kind of get caught in these like thoughts, then feelings, then actions, and we, we just spiral out. And so is thinking, so to go into the final bits of the question here, is thinking about how and where just as bad as preparing. It's not, I wouldn't, I don't even like the term bad. I think what you're doing is preparing and is you know, active suicidal thoughts, which I, if I was your therapist, would be very concerned and want to put together a safety plan. And the actual meaning of a safety plan is so that you have something there for you that you've agreed you will try before trying your plan and attempting to take your life. It's something to try to slow down the process so that we don't act impulsively because the fact that you um, oh, and it's something you can't do impulsively. I misread that earlier and I apologize. But that's that's what we worry about is that impulsivity component and then acting on it. And, you know, like I know people said this before and people hate this phrase, but a lot of people will say, you know, don't make a permanent choice based on a temporary feeling, right? And that's the, so a lot of people say that in regard to suicide. And I think those people don't understand suicide thought, like suicidal thoughts fully, but I just want you to know that that's why the plan is there so that the impulsivity doesn't take over and we don't attempt without considering first and at least trying to do some things to help us feel better. And so, yeah, those are my thoughts. I hope that that helps. I hope that that helps to just define the term crisis. That's something that unfortunately I haven't talked about, I don't think. So I did put it down in a a Google Doc and I will try to work on a video for that in the future. Okay, probably in the next month or so. Question number three, 
It says, hi, Katie, my therapist will regularly, or actually question number two, sorry, because the first one was not a question. My therapist will regularly ask me to rate my anxiety from one to 10. And hold on, let me get rid of this number one so it doesn't mess with all my, there we go. Okay. Will rate my anxiety from one to 10, but I never know what to say. I feel like I'll just say random numbers as I don't really know how I feel. Sometimes I think that saying a high number will make it look like I am not improving. But if I say a lower number, it could look like I'm really improving and that I'm wasting her time. I feel like I've waited too long to say that I don't really understand, know or understand how to answer that question. Would you be able to explain what these numbers actually mean? Thanks for all that you do. This is a great question. And the truth is, it's never too late to ask your therapist. I know you, it's like, do you ever get in conversations with people and you don't remember their name and it's too long, it's too late for you to ask them to repeat it again because it's been like five minutes and you're like, shit. Because you know, inner people introduce themselves to you right away when you walk up back in the day when we got to meet people. And I'm one of those people that's like, hi, you know, Sally. And then I immediately forget your name because I'm an asshole and I don't know why that is, but that's how my brain is. So you'll sometimes, if you ever meet me in person, I will try to repeat it. Like I'll be like, hi, Sally. It's so nice to meet you, Sally. I'm trying to say it to myself again so I remember because I don't know why it's just really hard. But it's it's like one of those things where then you get in those conversations and you feel like you can't ask for their name again. But in therapy, there's no social cues that you have to follow. You don't have to worry if it feels kind of awkward or it's been quote unquote too long. You can still ask. It's completely okay to still ask, what does this mean? Because the way that I would phrase it to your therapist is something to the effect of, you know, for a while we've been doing this one to 10 anxiety scale. And I don't really feel like I have a full understanding of the scale. Do you have a printout? Because what's the difference between a four and a five? I'd like to know so that I could accurately describe it. That's a fair thing to bring up and say. And as if as a therapist, if my patient said that to me, I would I would be like, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry. Let me get that for you. Or let's talk it out. Let's figure out what it feels like for you, which would probably be more what I would do is help you create the scale with me. And so aside from asking that, which I would really, 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 really encourage you to do, I would even encourage you if, if you don't feel comfortable asking, but also if you do, I think it's a good practice to put together your own scale. So what would a one on your anxiety be? One to me is usually like asleep or super calm, like meditating, you know, we're just like so chill. Then two would be like, you know, being pulled in and out a little bit, a little bit, but still okay. Maybe, you know, the anxious thoughts, they are there, but they float right on by, right? And just kind of thinking that scale all the way up. What would that mean? Five is like 50%. So that means that like, that's probably what a lot of us live in if we have anxiety disorders. What we live in most of our days is just like kind of okay, but also definitely aware of the anxious thoughts or the worry thoughts, right? And then 10 being like panic attack. And so figuring out what those different steps are for you could be, it's going to be really helpful. And it's really you and your own levels. So creating the scale and then even showing it to your therapist and saying, you know, we've been doing these scales for a while. And I just wanted you to know, this is how I have rated them or ranked them because I was having a difficult time knowing which ones to select. Because truthfully, I think for it could benefit you. Again, just another recommendation when you talk, when and if you talk to your therapist about this, which I think would be really helpful, is to bring in that scale that you create or create one with your therapist, but and then have it to reference. Because number one, you're not going to remember exactly how you broke those down each and every time. And number two, it can be helpful for your therapist to know what you mean by that. So if last week you were a six and this week you're a five, but the next week you're an eight, like it's just good to know what that really means. And then I guarantee it's going to allow your therapist to ask more follow-up questions and get a better understanding of how anxiety manifests and feels for you. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So really, uh, the numbers are just for you to rank your own anxiety. So that's that's why I think it's best for you to bring it up in therapy and work on the scale with your therapist so that you have something you can reference and you know look back at to ensure that you are ranking it according to how you feel. And then I do want to just just finally, in this question, sounded a little bit maybe a little attachment based. So I might bring that up in therapy as well, just to clear that out and see what we've got. Because when you said about, uh, you know, when I think, sometimes I think that saying a high number will make it look like I'm not improving. But if I say a low number, it looks like I'm really improving that I'm wasting her time. Um, 
I mean, maybe, I guess maybe it's not so much attachment now that I read it the second time, but I was curious about like, if you are worried that that it's going to be like, it's going to end your therapy. If there is worry of that, please bring that up. That's very important. It's good to understand. And then talking about it could be really healing and speaking up about it could be healing on that end too. But I don't think, I know it's, it's like opposite of our nature, but we don't really have to worry about our therapist thinking that we're improving so much and we're wasting her time. She's not going to think that. Trust me. She'd be like, oh, good. What I would take from it is I'd be like, that's awesome. In my head, I'd be like, wow, you're feeling so much better. And I'd look back at the homework that we did and what work we've been doing and be like, okay, those must be, you know, key components to this patient's anxiety. So let's dig in there and let's give more tools and more resources to that. That's what that really means is it's actually helping. We want to do more of that. And if it's going down and we're feeling more anxious, like, or I guess going up, let's say your, you know, your number's really, really high and you you just don't, aren't feeling good. Then I think, okay, well, the things that we were trying aren't working. Let's try something different. That's how I would use that. And I'm pretty sure that's exactly what your therapist is doing as well is just to see how it, first of all, it helps for, with patterns and it's an easy thing for her to track. She can just write down one to 10, what you were, how you're doing that week and then gauge the homework and stuff like that. And so, yeah. Anyway, I think that there's some definitely something in there. And I just wanted you to know that that would be how I would use it. Don't have to worry about like improving too much, not improving. We, those of us with anxiety know that it can be all over the place. We can have a week where we're like, I'm good. I'm flying high, feeling good. Yay. And the next week's like, boom, bad. So it's just a good way to track it. It can help us see patterns, whether it's like certain times of year or after our review at work or right before our review at work, you know, there's certain things that's good to, good to check up on. Okay. Question number three says, hi, Katie, I hope you're taking care of yourself. I'm doing my best. I actually did yoga today because my neck has been super sore and it felt really good. So I'm doing, I'm doing my best. How can I feel safe in my own skin again? I'm on high alert all the time. Any sudden, sudden movement and I freak out. My heart starts skipping like a rabbit and I don't know what to do. It's like being in survival mode, but having no reason for it. If you have any advice on that, I'll gladly listen to it. Love from Sacramento. Oh, hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is a very common symptom of PTSD or complex PTSD. Now, I don't know your history, but uh, our body responding in that way always has a reason because you said there's no reason for it. Maybe not in the moment, but I want you to think back. And I've talked uh, with my colleague and good friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, about big and little T's, meaning big, one big trauma and little bunch of the little traumas, all that lead to symptoms of PTSD or complex PTSD. And the the only difference, like the way she describes it, and it's, it's beautiful. She wrote a, a little insert for me for my book, like a little blurb about big T's versus little T's. It's beautiful. It's about waves and how there can be one wave that washes you out and you can't get your footing. Or there can be a bunch of little ones that like slowly wear you down until you fall in and you can't get your footing. And so there's no, I say that because one type of trauma is not worse or better than another type of trauma. There's no way in measuring here, okay? But this hypervigilance you're experiencing is clearly as a result of either a slew of little T's or a big T or a bunch of big T's. It's it's clearly based in trauma and it's clearly as a response to PTSD. Now, the best way to feel safe in our own skin again is kind of two-pronged. Number one is seeing a trauma specialist, getting in to see a therapist who either uh, says they specialize in trauma or does like, cause sometimes when you get online, it'll tell, it'll tell you like what types of treatment they offer, what types of therapy. If they have anything in that list of like EMDR, schema therapy, somatic experiencing, um, exposure therapy, those are all great ways for us to work on the trauma and our PTSD and get some alleviation of the symptoms, which is what you're experiencing. This hypervigilance is like one of the like red flag symptoms for PTSD. And so getting in to see someone is great. And then I mentioned exposure therapy. Unfortunately, once we, unfortunately, only because exposure therapy is uncomfortable, but it's super beneficial and can be in the end, very healing. And the way that exposure therapy works and why I'm talking about it with this is First, we have to build up our resources, meaning these skills and these coping tools that can help us feel better, help soothe our nervous system, like that full body shake I've been talking about, or 
coloring, journaling, um, putting a heavy blanket over ourselves, taking a warm bath, maybe going for a walk, maybe massaging our hand, maybe talking to a friend. There, Maybe we imagine that we're in this one beautiful, safe place for us. Like one of your favorite memories, take me there. You know, those are all resources that we have. Resources can be people, places, things, memories, you know, it can be a lot of different things. So you want to have those resources available because then as you expose yourself to things that are triggering, right, you're having the survival mode, you're being triggered and you're fight flight, you're, you're probably in a constant state of fight flight freeze. And so you're exhausted, your adrenaline, your system's exhausted. But if we have those coping skills, we have those resources, we can calm our system down and we can expose ourselves to the thing again. And then we calm our system down, you know. And so I think... That's really the advice that I have on it. Not that this makes it feel any better, but it's very common. And there are tons of tools and ways that we can help you feel better and soothe. But the one thing I would encourage you to make sure you don't do is do not allow the, these PTSD symptoms, this hypervigilance to shrink your world, meaning uh, walking out towards that Starbucks, you know, down the block, if there's more than two people in there, I can't go in. Oh, if someone walks up behind me in line, I freak out. I don't want you to not go out because of this. I want you to push through. I want you to talk with a therapist, find those calming things. We have our mantras, we breathe, we do the thing that's scary, even if it's scary, because I don't want your world to get so small that, you know, that's where agoraphobia comes from, is that we get so scared of being outside of our home and being in a place where we maybe can't leave and we panic, right? It just builds up. We can't leave our house. Our world gets very, very small. And so I want you to push back against that so that, you know, even though it might already feel like it's kind of small, I want you to push those boundaries. I want you to challenge yourself using your resources, calming your system down, you know, slowly and methodically. We don't want to re-traumatize ourselves, but we do want to challenge it. Okay. I hope that's helpful. I know that's a lot of information, but I think what you're struggling with is PTSD and hypervigilance. Question number four. Hi, Katie. If a client were to ask for more frequent sessions, how do you tell the difference between that person really needing more care or having an attachment to their therapist? Can it be a mixture of both? For context, I am an ACOA, which I believe in my mind stands for adult child of an alcoholic, but it could also be adult child of uh, um, abuse. Um, but I'm an, for this, I think it's adult child of an alcoholic with complex PTSD from 20 years of emotional and verbal abuse. I've been in therapy for six plus months now and really enjoy my therapist, but not to the point where I want any therapeutic relationship boundaries to be crossed, nor do I have expectations for him to fill that father wound. However, I definitely have fear of abandonment. Very normal. Hate being vulnerable with anybody, which is a popular topic in my therapy, I'm sure, and hide behind humor. So I have a hard time telling my therapist how much I'm actually struggling in between sessions, especially since I don't want it coming from a place of relying too much on him. Any advice? Couple of things. And the first I'm sure you saw coming. Talk to your therapist about it. We're not that scary. I promise it's really helpful for us to know where your brain is going and what you're worried about. It's honestly perfectly fine to tell your ask your therapist just the way you asked me. Like, hey, I think I might need more sessions, but I want to make sure that it's, you know, me actually needing more care and not me, you know, being attached to you. I know that that can be unhealthy and I worry about it because I do enjoy seeing you, but I don't, you know, I don't have expectations for you to be my father. It's okay to just talk this out. I know it's uncomfortable, but what a great way to practice communicating our needs and feelings in a safe place. That's what therapy is there for. We're trying new things, right? We're, you, we used to just stuff everything down, never tell anybody how we felt and then feel like shit later or explode randomly. Now we're going to try to communicate what we're thinking and feeling so that we can get some good advice and some understanding and then come to an, an agreement together on what we think the next best steps are. So that's my number one is please ask your therapist. But my thoughts are just to give you some context or maybe some greater understanding about this is that I believe we need more frequent sessions if we're not doing well in between sessions and the sessions just, it can feel just to give you an idea of what it can feel like as the patient, it can feel like there's just too much to go through in a week that you don't ever fully feel like you made progress. Does that make sense? Like, Back in the day, right before Sean and I got married, super stressful time. I was studying to take my licensing exam. I was planning a wedding. I was maxed, you guys, like, oh. And so I 
had to come out to my therapist about it. And I was like, hey, like I'm crying all the time. Like I'm in my car on my way to work. I'm crying in between, you know, this and that. And and I'm feeling maxed out. And like, I just, I, I was like, I got in the car and I just wanted to like run away somewhere. Where? I don't know. Right. But like, I was just explained to her what was going on and telling her how difficult that time was for me in between sessions, because I don't think I had fully expressed it to her. That's very normal. Oftentimes, because when I was in session, I felt like I had so much I wanted to get through. There was just never enough time. So I don't want to waste it saying like, hey, in between sessions sucks. Because I was like, well, then there's 10 minutes of my time and I have so much other stuff I want to talk to her about, right? So if you feel like you just can't get through what you need to get through in a session, if in between sessions is super terrible and you're having a tough time pulling it together and doing what you need to do, like me, like crying in my car on my way to work, like that's not normal for me. You know, that's a definite deviation from how I normally experience my life. Um, and I like how I giggle. It was super uncomfortable, you guys. It was terrible. Um, but if you find those things happening, you that's when you know you need a higher level of care. Because it sounds like you are struggling in between sessions. You just haven't communicated that to your therapist, which is very normal. So you should just communicate that. The attachment would be more, that attachment to your therapist would come more out of the fact that you think about them in between sessions a lot and want to talk to them about everything. And that's kind of like thinking the relationship is is something it's not right? Like we can start to think of our therapist as our best friend, as our mother, as our father, as our, you know, sibling, something like that. And we can want to tell them all the the details of stuff, just like you would a friend, like you'd text a girlfriend and be like, you know, I don't know, tell her about something that happened that day. That's how we can start to feel about our therapist. And that's when it's more attachment based. And like you said, the fear of abandonment, if you feel like you need to see them more so that they don't leave, then that would be more attachment based. But it sounds to me based on your question that you should bring up with your therapist and ask about, it sounds to me that yours is actually happening because you're struggling and you need more support. And aren't we all right? It's completely okay. And I'm proud of you for even considering it and thinking about reaching out and speaking up. Um, But yeah, that should, I hope that that helps just kind of tease that out and help you make a decision that's best for you. And I went up to two sessions a week for a little while and then back down to one. And we can always do that when we're feeling like it's just too much. That's okay. And then once I felt like I was kind of running out of things to say twice a week or like running out of issues to talk about, we went down to once a week. We did that for a few months because then things were kind of improving and I was feeling better. And then we went down to like every other week and then I stopped. So that's kind of how it should go. And I'll have a video coming out about ending therapy properly soon. So stay tuned for that. Okay. Question number five says, hi, Katie, does long-term emotional numbness ever fully go away? I am 24 years old and have been pushing down all my feelings and emotions since I was 11 years old for multiple reasons. I am completely numb. I don't feel anything. And when I do feel something, I have no idea what it is unless it is intense anger or sadness. That's very normal. I just have, I've just started therapy this year and I really want to heal and be able to process and feel my emotions. And although I have made some progress, the numbness is still very much there and can be overwhelming. It's getting increasingly difficult to maintain hope and keep pushing through. Will I ever heal from this? If I've bottled everything up for more than half of my life, I hope this makes sense. And I hope you are well and staying safe. Yes, I am. And I hope you are well and staying safe too. So, okay. Glad that it's getting better with therapy. It's going to take some time. Often, I think we expect change to happen quickly, even though the change to stuffing these things down, you said since you were 11, so you've been doing it for like half your, more than half your life. All that stuffing is just like innate. It's like we don't, we don't even think about it. We just do it, right? And so we have to kind of slow down that uh, doing, like thinking the doing process and slow it down so that we are thinking, we build that space in between the doing the actual stuffing, right, of the emotions and what's going on. And we try to build in some tools and start processing things. But it takes practice and it takes time, just like it did for you to get into this space where you feel like it just happens and you have no control. And so what I would encourage you to do is continuing working in therapy. And yes, you will heal from this. It is possible, trust me. But what could be helpful for you to do is homework in between your sessions. And you could bring this into therapy and I don't know if it would necessarily be that helpful for your therapist to know other than that you are doing it. 
but I always have my patients who have been stuffing things for a really long time. Like I had this patient once describe, I think I probably talked about this before, describe this like room in her brain that I don't, in my mind, from the way she described it, it kind of reminded me like an apothecary, you know, like a big wall filled with all different colors of bottles. Cause that's kind of how she described it, like a building in the wall and all the different bottles fit exactly in that little, you know, I guess shelf for them, a little box. Anyway, and she said when she starts to feel overwhelmed, she opens up one of those bottles that's empty and stuffs it all in there and then puts it organized nicely back onto the wall. And I was like, wow, how big is this wall? And she was like, endless. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So, so what we started to do, and here's what I want you to do, is I want you to start at least Googling and page marking um, a feelings chart. Now you just get on Google and you type in feelings chart. I am really keen on the round one, the one that's a circle. I don't know why. It seems more pleasing than lists. I don't know if anybody else agrees with me. And they put them kind of like all of the sad emotions are kind of together in like the slice on the wheel. And I don't know. I really love the wheel. So check that out. I've been looking to create my own maybe uh, that's like printable on my website. I'll see. Maybe I can do that soon. So anyways, um, print out or save and bookmark feelings chart. And then every day this week, I want you to come up, come up with one feeling you felt that day. Now, each day they cannot be the same. So in a week, we cannot use the same emotion again, but the next week we can, okay? So I want you to come up with one each and every day and then see how that goes for a week. If it was really, really hard and each time was super trying, stick with one and let's do this until it becomes easy. And easy meaning, I have to think about it. It's not, it's very normal for people to be like, well, what did I feel today? Hmm. And you have to think. It do, You don't have to like, boom, automatically. But you think about it and you come up with one and you're done in like five minutes, right? So I want you to do that. And if it gets really easy, I want you to up it to two and then to three with a maximum of five. Now, I know we have more emotions than five in a day. It's very possible. It's very common. But that's just for practice. I don't think I need you to be like writing down like every emotion you ever have. So we'll work up to that. When we get up to identifying five emotions, or even three, actually, you could probably start at three. I want you to take one of those. And I want you to write a sentence about it, about what it felt like and what maybe triggered it without using that feelings word. So let's say the feelings word is awful. I feel awful. Well, if I'm going to put that in a sentence, I will say, you know, someone was rude to me on the phone today. And then I also got some bad news about that work project. And so I also didn't sleep well. And I think that might be why I'm just feeling so down and out today. Okay. I know that seems like more than one sentence because it kind of is. Sometimes there's like a lot of stuff going on. But I want you to start writing those sentences. Just pick one emotion word out of that day and write a little sentence about it, what it feels like to you. It could be like awful feels like a weight on my shoulders. It makes my feet feel heavy and my eyes feel, you know, we get however you want to describe it. So describe it, you know, how it feels, what maybe happened and practice doing that. And that will help you. What we're trying to do is like my, my yoga teacher talks about flirting all the time. He uses that word to describe like trying a new pose or like flirting with a muscle or a stretch. He'd be like, don't just jump on in and try to have sex with it. Flirt with it first. I love Brian Kest. He cracks me up. But it's true. In life, so often we think we just have to jump in and do something all the way. Like you, it's like we we can have this expectation, like you're saying, like I'm in therapy and it's just so hard and we can assume or hope and think that, oh, I'm just going to open up and then boom, I'm going to feel my feelings. I'm not going to stuff them down. I'm just going to do it. No, we have to flirt with it first. We have to flirt with the feelings. We have to get to know them a little bit. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it's the best description because flirting is being curious getting to know a thing, right? A person, usually we describe it that way, but this way we're talking about feelings. You're getting to know those feelings. You're getting better at recognizing them, deciding if you like them or not, right? Think of how we talk about and feel about flirting. And I want you to apply that to your emotions and your feelings so that you can slowly get to know them. We start flirting, then maybe we start dating them. And then hopefully in the end, you will, you know, marry them, become part of you and part of your life fully. But that takes time, right? And we know it takes some time for us to re to to get to know them and to build that relationship. I know it sounds weird, but I'm telling you, it can really, really help. So give that a try and keep me posted. Moving on to question number six says, Hi, Katie, can you please explain what exactly 
counts as physical abuse. For example, I know that unfortunately it is not uncommon for parents to use spanking, belting, hitting, etc. as a form of discipline. But when does that cross the line? How often or severe would someone have to be hit for it to actually be considered abuse? Thanks. Now, I do want to throw out there, we're talking about physical abuse specifically, but there are a lot of different types of abuse and emotional abuse, like just yelling at someone and putting them down or manipulating them in some way is emotional abuse. That one doesn't leave any marks, but it often goes unnoticed and untreated. So I just wanted to acknowledge that as well as sexual abuse. But today for this question, we're going to talk about physical abuse, okay? In all honesty, any form of of hitting a child as a means of of harming them in some way, it is abuse. Like I know people say it's a form of discipline. We know through research, just FYI, I'm not a parent, so I know things can get tough. And trust me, I was a nanny for years, so I know children can be trying and things can be stressful and overwhelming financially, sleep deprivation. There's a lot of factors, no judgment. But just consider this, that we know through research that physical discipline, like spanking, belting, hitting, does not actually teach children it's not effective, I guess is the best way I want to describe it. It's not effective to, at teaching children. It creates fear in a child, fear of a parent, fear of the you know ramifications of doing something that gets them in trouble. We find better forms of discipline are actually conversations where we tell them that we're disappointed in their actions and we want them to help explain like why it was bad. Like, tell me, tell me why you thought that was a good idea. And then I'd like you to tell me if you can see my side. Having those, I know not all children, right? different ages have different capabilities. But when children are little, and we aren't able to communicate with them about something and why it upset us, it then it's uh, timeouts. And all different a- different ages will be able to sustain different amounts of timeouts. Like if you have a, a toddler, putting them in timeout for like a minute can feel like forever to them, right? So it's all dependent on your child. But taking things away and timeouts are much more effective as well as communication about upsets and what was wrong and why, you know, why that decision didn't actually bode well, ends up creating more uh, confident, self-assured, and good, for lack of a better term, good children. So anyways, I just wanted to get that out there because not enough people talk about that. And I know as as a person who's not a parent, people can feel very judged by that. And I don't mean it in any judgment. I just mean it as now, you know, right. And we can take, we can change things. We can make things better. I personally was spanked as a kid. Like we would get the wooden spoon. That was how we were spanked. Um, not very often, but it happened and it didn't turn me into, you know, it's not like we're ruining children's lives, but there are better ways to discipline and are better ways to, you know, deal with a, a child acting out, because usually when children act out in some way, not always, but a lot of the time it's because they fail to to have the tools to communicate what's going on in their upsets and stuff like that. And so, you know, talk to them, talk to your children, help them become more emotionally intelligent because it helps all of us. Okay. So what exactly counts as physical abuse? Um, So I had pulled this up because to me, it's all physical abuse. Like what you're talking about is... um, like the spanking belt and any of that, that's all abuse. And there, I know the, the real thing that they talk about a lot when it comes to court cases, because unfortunately I haven't, I mean, thank God, knock on wood, I haven't been involved in these, but some of my colleagues have, and I've had to, you know, assist them and be a support to them while they were figuring all of this out and going to court for child abuse cases and things like that. But when an adult intentionally does like doesn't act so it could be you know slapping spanking hitting you know punching there's so many different things that they could do uh to cause injury or trauma to another person that's what we constitute as physical abuse so if you're doing something with the goal of of hurting of injuring a child or of scaring them it's it's physical abuse i know a lot of people uh don't consider certain things physical abuse. Like we said, the spanking, like that's pretty normal. It shouldn't be. Again, because it can cause like if you if you don't remember trauma or being traumatized when we fear for our own life or safety or the life and safety of someone close to us. So if we ourselves are getting spanked and we don't know, maybe we fear that our parent would take it too far, might break a bone or maybe they have. 
that's a trauma. Or if we've watched our sibling have that happen to them, that's a trauma. And so I really don't think that any of that is appropriate. And it actually is all physical abuse. But in courts, they also do like, if it left marks or open handed versus closed handed, meaning like you spank them on the bottom, like boop, boop. It's they don't consider that physical abuse as like closed fist, right? I don't know if I personally agree with all that. I encourage all of my parents that I see in my practice over the years to try to communicate with their children. And most of them who have put in the effort to try to do that, it takes some learning on our side, have reported better outcomes. But again, I'm not a parent. I'm just a therapist. And any of those things that count as physical abuse, anything that does uh, causes us physical injury or fear incites fear. If it's done with that purpose and that's the goal, it's physical abuse. Okay. And let me know if you have follow-up questions about that because it's kind of hard to sometimes, and I think that's the issue people have, is sometimes it's hard to define it. But, but the, yeah, spanking, using a belt, all of that's physical abuse. Question number seven. Hi, Katie. I wondered if you could please explain the rules surrounding sexual assault for minors. I know in other videos, you've talked about it being the client's choice whether to report it or not, but does that extend to minors as well? Yes and no. We'll get into it. Are you obligated or allowed to report an incident without their consent or to tell their parents? And if the client refuses to give any information regarding the incident or who is responsible, what would you do? Thanks, Katie. So when people are minors, meaning under the age of 18, and maybe different countries have different rules for this, but in these states and most countries that I know of, like Canada, the UK, it's all 18. You become an adult. You go from being a minor to an adult. And the truth about it is I'm a mandated reporter. So if you were sexually assaulted as a minor, that's actual, like, that's a reportable offense. And I've had patients do this over the years and Especially when I worked, I worked worked in this uh, clinic downtown for a while, and I worked in a free clinic in North Hollywood for many, many well, actually not many years, many months. It was like I think just over a year um, when I was first. It was one of my first jobs. So, anyways, at those jobs, unfortunately, I had a lot of instances where I had to report, and a lot of people wouldn't want to tell me information about it. Now, as as a mandated reporter, you do some of your own research, you figure things out, but you still have to report with the information that you have. Now. That may mean that, you know, the person who's responsible isn't found or isn't convicted because there's not enough information. But at the end of the day, as a therapist, we call it, and this sounds bad to say it this way, especially in regard to situations like this, but we call it CYA, which just stands for cover your ass. Because we're mandated, we have to do all that we can to report it. Because if we don't, we could lose our license. And so that's why the cover your ass. It's not that we don't care about our patients or we wouldn't do it anyways. It's just... I, if I didn't have all the information, I probably wouldn't report it because it's not helpful, but I would, I would CYA and do it anyways. And so that's what I would do. I would give them the information that I had about the patient who reported it because it's one of those things that I'm legally mandated to do. I don't have a choice. I would tell them what had happened at roughly where I knew that you lived at that time or who it was that I think it is or how old this person is or where did it happen at school. Like I'd give them as much information as I had and then hope for the best. And they would do an investigation. And that's unfortunately how our laws work. Now, uh, so I'm obligated to report it without the consent of my patient. But I, I always, and I would assume every clinician would say this, I always talk to my patients about it first. And we can, I've even had many that want to be on the call and report it with me. Some people like that. Some people don't. That's okay. But I tell them and let them know. Um, and I'm not... I mean, ethically, I am obligated to tell people's parents, depending on the situation and what's happening, because a lot of times when I'm reporting these things, unfortunately, it is a parent or a close family member. Now, if it's a close family member, I will talk to the parents and in, you know, in the most aggressive way as a therapist can by, t- you know, towing the line of like, you should not have this person in your family around your children anymore, because it's clearly not safe, you know, and I will, I will be forced to continue to report you know, I kind of strong arm them because I want to protect my patient and all people who are, you know, in a protected class, you shouldn't be in dangerous situations. I hear from all of you all the time that your family will allow your past abuser to hang out. Fuck that. I'm not, I'm not down with that. And I will push back. So I am not, I don't believe legally mandated. It doesn't, 
I'm mandated to report it to the state, but I'm not mandated to tell your parents. Although ethically, I would say that we should. And I, I probably would, but I would talk to you about it first and make sure that it was safe for you. Because like I said, sometimes the parents are the ones that are guilty. In that case, I wouldn't tell them. So it kind of depends case to case. But ethically speaking, I, I talked about this on last, I think it was last week's episode where I talked about how the confidentiality when we're a minor um, is only, you know, is breached for the same reasons it would be as an adult, but also drug, sex, and rock and roll member. Like if we're doing things that are dangerous or engaged in dangerous activity, then we would tell your parents and I would talk to you about it. But this would, this would fall into it if it's safe for me to tell them. And yeah, so I hope that that, uh, that that helps because when it comes to minors, you're a protected class. And so we have to protect you. We have to do that. Let me know if you have any follow-ups. Moving on to question number eight. It says, hi, Katie. What exactly qualifies an experience to be traumatic? Oh, we kind of talked about this earlier. Growing up, I went to a doctor who made me feel that the pain I had was fake. Ugh, doctors. Telling me not to think about it and it would go away. Oh, Jesus Christ. Tell him not to think about it. Since then, I have found that I question my decisions and my thoughts and do not trust that what I'm feeling is real. I'm so sorry you had that experience. I also find it difficult to open up because I'm afraid my feelings will not be validated. That's fair. Just like when I was younger. I do not know if this could be considered a traumatic experience or if I'm just overthinking it or if there was another name for it. Maybe it was just an unfortunate experience. I don't think that this would be considered traumatic in the basics of like what trauma is. And that doesn't mean that it's not a big deal either. Okay. But when it comes to trauma, it's, it's has to do more with our fear for our safety in our life in some way. Um, now it could be a little T that built up with other little T's that slowly then washed you out because little T's can be things like um, it could be a big T to this example, but the first one's like your parents got divorced. That could be a big T for you if it was like very disruptive or if things were pretty amicable, they didn't really shout and scream in front of you and like it was okay, you didn't have to move schools, shit like that. Then it might be a little T, still stressful, still overwhelming. Maybe we're not able to process it because part of, sorry, I just realized I didn't mention having being traumatized isn't just the component of fearing for yours or another's safety. There's also this component of it being too psychologically overwhelming, meaning like I'm so overwhelmed with emotions or feelings about a situation that I don't have any capability to process it. I am overrun with it, right? I don't even know how to cope or deal. And so that is what causes the PTSD response. And so in and of itself, this one instance where you're this doctor was super invalidating would not, in my mind, be considered a traumatic experience. However, like I said, it could have been one of those little T's that built up over your life and and now we're struggling with the a trauma response. So I know that's not like, yes, it is or no, it's not, but everybody's different, right? And our our ability, meaning our resilience, our ability to weather the storm and come through it, everyone's level is different. So this might be considered a big T to you, but to someone else, it might not be at all. And there's no judgments around that. It's just we all have our own differing amounts of ability to cope. Does that make sense? Okay. So moving past that, what would I consider this? Now, first of all, I would I would consider this like a I don't know. The way I describe them to myself and to my patients is we have key experiences for better, for worse. We have these big pivotal moments in our life where something happens and again, could be trauma or not. It's not so much about the trauma, whether that is or isn't. It's about what that instance or that experience did to us. So this could be an experience with a doctor like this where we were invalidated. So therefore we believe that all professionals, right? It's like it damaged us down to our, our, core beliefs about us and our environment and our situation so much so that maybe we believe all professionals are going to invalidate us so we don't seek any more help, right? So that's a pivotal moment. Another example of a pivotal moment or experience could be something like, you know, uh, that first big breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend or whoever you were dating when you thought that you loved them. And that was, you know, we all have that. And that can be really hard. And it's this pivotal moment where we're like, oh my God, it's not as perfect and amazing as I thought it was going to be like relationships end. It's just life, right? We have to learn that. And then, you know, there's other things like losing your first job or, 
or even um, even good things. Like I know I'm mentioning bad things, but there's also pivotal moments like uh, getting into college or having a baby or uh, landing that job that you like or finally deciding to move out of your parents' house. Those are all pivotal moments that change how we view and experience the world and ourselves. So I say that because you're not overthinking it. This this doctor was a dickwad and it's really affected you. But um, so I think it's, it's it's an unfortunate experience. It's a pivotal, it's a pivotal experience. It's a, a key experience, if you want to call it that, that has affected you. Now, I do want to offer some advice about this because it's something that I personally just heard the other day and it has not only changed my view of how, what, how I do my job, but also just like me as a person and how I how we do this to ourselves and and I'm in it with you is why I'm saying it this way is obsessing over an old pain or an invalidation and I'm just re, I'm read like telling you as much as I remember almost like word for word as I read this it was an article I was reading um by obsessing over the pain or invalidation that we experienced we only prolong the upset and prevent the healing and I know oh is heavy and it's a lot to unpack and it's like well shit I do that I get my feelings hurt and I can think about things for days you guys and then good old friend anxiety will bring that thing up like six years later and be like remember when you said that stupid thing and da, 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 da. that person's really mean yeah right so cool not so something that I've been trying to much success it's given me much success is when I find myself ruminating about a past pivotal experience or, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, unfortunate experience, when I find myself ruminating about it, re-wounding myself with the pain and the invalidation and the shame and embarrassment or whatever came along with it, I do some thought stopping and I distract myself with something else because it's not helpful. That that thought process that we've had, we've already had it before. It's like, it's like we, uh, one of my favorite, one of my favorite bands, is the Postal Service. I don't know if you guys know who they are. I love them. They don't make any new music anymore. So it's like a favorite band that like doesn't create. Although I think they actually came out with a new album. Was it last year? Anyway, but it had been a long time. So anyways, one of my favorite lines from their songs, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the song. It's not important, is it won't heal right if you keep tearing out the sutures. And it's such a beautiful verbal, like uh, I can just feel it. I can see it when it comes to the, what we're doing here, right? this won't heal right if we keep tearing out the sutures. And so you're obsessing and worrying when we do that, right? I do that all the time. When I do that, I'm only tearing out the sutures. And then I got to stitch back up and I got to wait again. Got to wait for it to heal, right? It's like we're just slowing down that healing process, potentially causing a big scar. And so I love that line. And I think about it with my own life and how I obsess about pains and hurts and unfortunate experiences in my life. And I try to distract and change it because it's not going to help me. What can help me is finding a better doctor who's not a dickwad, talking about it, maybe journaling about it till there's nothing left to tell, and then moving forward and challenging those false negative thoughts along the way. It's a lot of work. I know, trust me, it's like a new muscle and it's it's really tired or it gets really tired really quickly and it's sore. You know, it's like any new muscle, right? We're going to work it out and it's going to take a little time to build it up. Okay. Moving on to question number nine says, Hey, Katie, what should someone do if they can't ask for help? For the longest time I was suffering and I was offered therapy, but refused. I couldn't admit that everything that happened was hard for me. So I yelled at everyone I cared about that I'm fine until I stopped feeling anything. And now I seem so happy. So they think everything is solved and that I'm actually fine, but I'm not. I just can't bring myself to talk to anyone that I know or even say yes when they offer help. I don't know what to do or how to stop saying that I'm fine. The best thing you can do is start writing out what you really feel. What's going on? Talk about it to yourself. It's a safe place. That's why journaling is so beneficial. How are you feeling? What's happening? What's, why did you say no? And why did you not want the help? Like write about that. And then I want you to, and I've talked about this before in other instances when it comes to reaching out and speaking up. You're going to need to write down a few bullet points of what you wish they could hear. What do you want them to know? Keep it short and succinct. What are those things? What do you really need from them? What do you wish you'd said? Think about that. Write that out. And then I want you to push through and I want you to fucking tell them, I know you can. 
I know you've said no in the past. We've all done that. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. Six months later, I'm not fine. That's okay. No one would think that that's crazy or like they might say, but we asked you before. Yeah, I just, I thought I could deal with it, but I can't. We all humans would understand the fact that they even offered help means that they, they care about you and they would understand. Give them an opportunity to rise to the occasion. We're not always ready for the help that people offer when, when, at the time when they offer it. Does that make sense? It's like sometimes the timing is just off. I've even told Sean this sometimes when I'll bring up something to him that I'm upset about and he'll go into like fix it mode or like, well, we could just do, and I'm like, I'm not ready for your advice yet. I'm like, all I want from you now is just to listen and I'll let you know when I need some help and I'll ask you for the help. And he's like, okay. So sometimes we're just not ready for it. Sometimes we just need to feel it, vent it and do that. And so you did that and now you actually need to help. So I want you to start getting to know yourself about what that help would be and what you're really upset about and bullet pointing what you need them to know. Practice saying that out loud to yourself over and over and over again. So even if you want to duck out or zone out or dissociate, you could do it in your sleep. And then I want you to pick one person who feels the safest and I want you to let them know. And then we can do the other one and you know we can move through it that way. Because you can ask for help. They've offered it. Just because we said no once or multiple times doesn't mean that we don't need it now. I, Offering help isn't like a time sensitive, limited edition type of thing. If I'm offering someone a resource, I'm there for them. And if, you know, it takes a little while for them to come around to it and they come back and they're like, you know, you offered to to do that. Would you mind? Could we do that? I'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. Of course. That would really be it. I think sometimes our, our depression or anxiety or just our mental health issues don't let us see things clearly that when people have offered help, really, even if we've shouted and everything, that just shows that they care. And if we just let them know we needed that help after all, they'd be there for us. So let them help you. Okay. Final question. Question number 10 says, Hey, Katie, I hope you're well. Thank you. I am. I was just wondering, is it normal after working on childhood sexual abuse in therapy and feeling okay for a month for everything to fall apart again? I can tell it's getting bad again slowly, and I'm just not sure what to do. I don't want to go into therapy while it's not face-to-face. I find it too uncomfortable over the phone or by video. Thank you. Um, yes, this is normal for what, what you're experiencing is very normal. So often um, when we start dealing with, you know, childhood sexual abuse or honestly any kind of trauma from our childhood, at the beginning sometimes, not for everybody, because I don't want anybody who's like, oh, it was bad from the beginning. But for some of us at the beginning, it's, it's okay. It's, it's easier. We're getting support. We're starting to work on it, right? And we could possibly be using some of our unhealthy coping skills or just coping skills that we have. Maybe we have some built up resilience from things that we did in the past. I don't know. We we're okay for a little bit. And then we start to, it starts to wear us down, right? The work is so super hard and the coping skills that used to work don't work anymore, or we're having to do with more frequency. We don't have the time. You know, there's all these things that could happen. And so we can start to feel worse and feel like it's falling apart again. Also, I want to mention that it might just be that we need more support. We need therapy. We need some resources and we need different coping skills than we've used in the past because we've never dealt with this before. And so it's like, we don't, it's, uh, I always like to talk about coping skills and stuff as like tools in a toolbox. So if we have our tools in our toolbox to help us with, uh, electrical work, but now we're like pouring cement and make building, uh, putting in walls and we need totally different tools and skills, right? It's like, I can't be a plumber and an electrician, right? I'm going to need different tools for that, different skills for that. And so that could be the reason why you feel like it's falling apart again, too, because you just don't have those skills and tools to help manage. And I really, I really, really would push you and challenge you to start therapy. I know it's not face-to-face and it sucks, but getting that support in any form right now is really helpful. I would encourage you to push them to do it by video. I know it's not ideal. Trust me, I don't think it's ideal either. And I personally don't like it. But I think uh, over by video is better than by phone. And so I'd push for you to try that and at least get it started until we are able to come back face to face. Because the truth about that is, is I don't know how long that's going to be. In LA, we've gone in and out of doing it. And technically, as therapists, we could do it. We are essential workers. But because our job is talking and not being able to see half of my patients' faces just does not jive. It doesn't work for me. Um, And yeah, the exposure. So there's so many things, so many things. And so 
I don't know how long it will be in it. And honestly, even a month is just too long for you to wait. So I would encourage you and push you to start giving that a try. And also I want to make you aware of, and I've talked about this on other live streams and other places on the interwebs. Um, there is this thing called hope for recovery and it's the number four in the middle dot. I don't, I think it's, uh, what is it? Dot gov. No, not dot gov. Um, org. That's what it is. I just had to think about it. I was like, it's not dot com. It's not edu. It's not gov. It's dot org. Hope for recovery dot org has free groups, group therapy. It's online. Yes, that sucks. It's over video, but that might be a nice way to get a little extra support. They talk specifically to abuse and trauma. And that's, you know, they even uh, tiptoe into like eating disorders, binge eating. Um, there's other, you know, they have even trauma informed yoga and all sorts of stuff over there. So I'd really encourage you to check that out. And even though therapy is not as good, it's better than nothing. And that's what I would encourage you to do because we all need that support. That's why you're feeling like shit. Working on that stuff is hard and the Courage to Heal workbook is hard. It's so impossible. It can feel really impossible on your own because it's hard to challenge yourself and not fall apart, right? So we need that extra support and understanding. Thank you so much, you guys. Thank you for that beautiful uh, comment slash question that got all those thumbs ups. You guys are the best. You are just wonderful. And like I said at the beginning, you make my days and really keep me motivated doing what I do. Um, if you are new, welcome, welcome, welcome. Uh, feel free to leave reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever you can leave reviews. I'm not even sure. And also share the podcast. And if you're wondering where I get the questions, I get them on the community tab of the opinions that don't matter YouTube channel, which is where my podcasts are. If you're watching this video, you're already there. You just got to go to the community tab. On Mondays, I ask for your questions. Some of you have complained about the time zones not working. So I scheduled some because usually I just put them out live. Like like today, it was like, I was like, shit, I haven't put it out. So I scheduled them for Monday at like 6 a.m. my time. So even if you're in Europe, it won't be in the middle of the night for you. If you're in Australia, it might be late the day because you're in the future, but you're like back five hours from me, I think. So it might be difficult for you, but we'll move it around and we'll try to accommodate different time zones. So get it while the getting's good, you guys. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. And I will talk to you soon. Bye. Or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.